Well, hello again, friends. Welcome to In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. I am Dr. Brian Koning, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Tim. Tim, what is going on? How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. We're super excited to continue talking about narrative today. And uh, how are you doing, Brian? You know, I'm doing well. I'm excited to keep going because last time was part one. We started talking about story and how it shapes and frames the Old Testament. And we got into some of, I think, what we're both passionate about Mm -hmm. uh, in understanding God's story and how it applies to us. Just to orientate us to today's topic, Tim, can you help us kind of recap what were some of the big points we covered in the last episode? Yeah, so last episode we talked about the the fact that narrative is a primary genre of the Old Testament, you know, approximately 40% of the Old Testament, and really the rest of the Old Testament depends on that narrative as well. And really in the entire Bible, if we want to understand uh, the story of what God is doing, we have to understand how the stories of the Bible are told. And so uh, story in, in its most basic function, it helps us to express our worldview. Uh, story helps us to orient ourselves to what God is doing in the world in a way that, uh, you know, dogmatics or, or kind of a, a descriptive element of, of God is this or we are this, th- those things are good and necessary, but story kind of brings it to the, you know, the, the foot level of how we live and, and how we relate to the world in those ways. Uh, and, and here was, Brian, the primary, uh, the primary topic that we talked about was when it comes to stories, we need to come with a fresh set of eyes, you know, rather than having those Sunday school eyes of thinking we already know what the story is going to say, or that we already know kind of what the moral is at the end of the story. We've got to be mature in our reading, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's difficult. It just means that as we come to the text, we come at it with an attitude that says we want the short story to shape our view of reality. And, uh, and we need to let the story take the unexpected turns that maybe as kids, we kind of ironed out, uh, but the stories are really so much more complex and beautiful, and because of that, so much more valuable than oftentimes we were told when we initially learned of those stories. So that's really what we talked about last time. Um, any Anything you want to add to that, Brian, before we kind of move on? Yeah, we just really saw the importance of coming as active readers, Tim, as you yes, were saying, yes. to help us understand story and how fundamental... The second point maybe I'll make is how fundamental story is to how Mm -hmm. we view the world. It allows us to express our worldviews in ways that maybe if I just put out a list of here are propositional statements that I believe that might be accurate, but it's always going to be in story that we express who we are. And that's important because that's the type of thing God gave us because it's expressing the worldview he wants us to have. Uh, about how we live in this broken and fallen world and still seek after and find him. So that yeah. was part one of kind of digging into narrative. And we're, we're coming back today because there's a second component we want to dig into, which is understanding theology out of narrative. Way back in episode one, we brought up that Christianity Today article, right? That mm-hmm. of the hundred most used verses in systematic theology, only eight, right? Only eight were from the Old Testament. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to, I bring that up because I want to actually give a defense or an apology rather for those systematic theologians. Because when you read narrative, especially biblical narrative, 
you rarely have just simple and explicit statements of theology. Moreover, you rarely have like a moral to the story. Mm -hmm. Take, for instance, uh, let's look at the New Testament real quick with Paul. Paul is beautiful for systematic theology and understanding theology because he just states it as propositions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, Tim, of like 1 Corinthians 15, where Mm -hmm. he says, I've received what I passed on to you as of the first importance. Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to scriptures. Uh, He appealed to Cephas, uh, rather appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Mm -hmm. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as Mm -hmm. to one abnormally born. Paul says in those scriptures, those are just clear statements of theology. Mm -hmm. Christ died for sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, right? Those are simple propositions of theology. Mm -hmm. Contrast that with narrative we don't have simple statements of theology like that very often in narrative, do we? Yeah, no, I, I love that example, Brian. And, and what's fascinating is that even situating those really kind of propositional ideas, Jesus came, died, buried, and was resurrected on the third day, it's interesting to me that he joins those with a kind of narrative context of he appeared first to this person and then this person and then these people and then finally me. Like it, it really shows us kind of the the natural blending that takes place between something that's kind mm-hmm. of uh, propositional by its nature and the fact that we, we come to understand those propositions through our own experience of the world. So I, I think that's a perfect example because it shows how the two really can't be torn apart Uh, But we have to understand them or we come to understand them by understanding how they work together, which is, of course, the point of this episode today. Oh, that's wonderful. I wasn't even thinking of that. But yeah, he blends straight from propositions to tie it to a story, Mm -hmm. a narrative of Christ appearing, because that's how it's going to then be played out. These propositions then shape the story of Peter of the 12, right? And how they go forward. Yeah. So, yeah, Brian, and and I'm going to kick this back to you. So as as we seek to understand, because we do want to understand God, right? I mean, theology is the study of God. We want to understand God the best we can. But the question is, if God has given us narrative as one of the primary vehicles to do that, and yet narrative doesn't necessarily lend itself to the kind of distilled or refined statements of theology— I guess the question is, how do we do that well? How do how can we you know avoid some of the pitfalls? So um, give give us give us some examples here, and I I think we've got an example here ready to go of Genesis twenty eight with Jacob's dream at Bethel. Walk us through maybe that and and how that can help us apply some of these ideas. Sure. So as I'm thinking of narrative and wanting to kind of compare and contrast, you have Paul and the epistles will often make just simple statements of this is a theological view. But if you look at Old Testament narrative, and we are going to look at Genesis 28, I think we see we have to work harder, or rather we have to be more active readers, because theology is still ever-present. But instead of being explicit, it's implicit. It's going to be inferred from the story and the ongoing narrative. So for our listeners, you might want to pause this episode here briefly, go pull out your Bible, and go to Genesis chapter 28 and read the story of Jacob's dream at Bethel. This is in chapter 28, verses 10, through the end of the chapter, verse 22. So maybe pause this episode now and come back once you've read it. 
So assuming now that we've looked at the story, or at least very familiar with it, there are very few statements of explicit theology in this passage, and yet there's a lot of rich depth to the story. For those that maybe didn't have time to go read it, uh, Jacob is traveling away from his family, having now taken or stolen, depending on how you want to view it, the birthright from his brother. Uh, He's setting out to Laban's, and he's going on a very long journey very difficult journey, a very dangerous and uncertain journey. And he arrives at this place and God appears to him in a dream. This is what is colloquially known as Jacob's ladder, right, Tim? Mm -hmm. Where Jacob has a vision of God speaking from heaven. He sees angels ascending and descending on a ladder. We can get into it. That's maybe not the best translation of what he sees, but uh, that's probably another conversation for another day. Different Um, episode. Yeah. Yeah. Different episode. (laughs) But anyway, he awakes and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I wasn't aware of it. This must be the house of God, which is what, of course, Bethel means in Hebrew. And he rises the next morning. He sets up a pillar, pours oil over it and makes a vow that if God actually does what he says, he will serve God. He'll give him a tenth of everything he has. Now, you read through the story and I said there's no explicit statements of theology, but there's rich theology woven through it. If we've been tracking the narrative of Genesis and of Jacob's life, this story tells us very clearly God is a faithful God, right? God originally has made his covenant with Abram some 16 chapters earlier. Now we're on to the grandson and he is still here. He is moving the covenant generation to generation. He is still there. He is unchanging. He's faithful. More than that, he's faithful even when the human recipient of the covenant is to be honest, a horrible person. Uh, (laughs) Jacob is one of those interesting figures in Genesis. I don't think you're supposed to like him. I don't think the author of Genesis wants you to like him for most of his life. That's the point. He has a redemption arc. He needs to learn to trust in God, and the story plays into it. But we do see that God is still faithful, even as Jacob is maybe an unworthy recipient of God's favor. His mom always loved him, so you got to remember that. That so was... he had a face only a mother could love. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's reading a little too much in, but um, we see also quite interesting, Jacob is surprised to find God in this place. And if we understand the context of the ancient world, most people thought gods were landlocked to the territory of their worshipers. So Jacob, seeing God here, is like, I can't believe God is in this place. Tells us as a reader something very important. This God apparently is omnipresent. He's not limited to just where his people are, but he seems to be able to travel with Jacob. And that's going to be a very important concept going forward, that God can move and is everywhere. You can't escape him. And we see also that God cares even for fallen creation. God has a desire to bless Jacob and through him to bless the world, extending the Abrahamic covenant. While there's no explicit statements of theology, if we were just reading through this, there's a lot in this story and a lot of very powerful things that this story teaches us about God, about his view of the world, and his engagement in the history of humanity. Yeah, Brian, all of all of those are great points, and I love how you refer to it as inferred theology. And, you know, as I as I think about both the story in Genesis 28, but also it applies to narrative as a whole, I think one of the reasons that, again, like we talked about last last episode, that God gives us 
information about himself in the form of narrative is partially because of the act of discovery that it encourages. You know, it's one thing to be told a list of information, and we could have said all those propositions, or God could have said those. I'm faithful, or I'm faithful to the next generation, or I'm faithful when you're unfaithful, or I'm not restricted. And there are statements that say those things, but how much more powerful when we read a story, and as we engage with it as active readers, as we discover those truths uh, in, in a lived reality, to me, that's so much more powerful than if we're just given a list. In other words, inferring the theology actually makes it more fertile in changing our lives. I think that's part of why God is is doing it this way is because he wants us to discover it rather than, you know, it just be kind of downloaded in, in, in the form of a proposition or in the form of information. I love your I love your take on that story and and even even the idea that you know, as we think about as we think about that act of discovery, Jacob had to discover all of those things about God, right? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. it's not just yep. about us; it's about him coming to know the faithfulness of God. It's about him coming face to face with his own unfaithfulness, and as you mentioned, kind of the character arc and the moral transformation that he undergoes, uh, as well as understanding that hey, there is no place I can go where God is not still going to be faithful to His covenant. In other words, territorial boundaries. Uh, and then God's care for the fallen creation. I, I think sometimes we miss, and I know we're going to talk about this more in a minute, sometimes we miss that those characters, you know, Jacob wasn't walking around with any scripture, much less a systematic mm-hmm. theology about God. He had to discover these realities about God himself, but he had to discover them as he was living them. And the same thing is true for us. Yeah, and just to extend that point, I, I think you make a great analogy, Tim, when you say relationships— it's not just about a knowledge of facts. It's about something experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, to pull from philosophy, right, we're going to talk about it. This is the difference between de dicto or factual knowledge and de re or personal or experienced knowledge. Mm-hmm. For any of our listeners, think of your relationship with your best friend, your spouse, whomever it is. While you would say you would know facts about them, I don't think any of us say our relationship is predicated on just a simple knowledge of facts, but it's an experience and learned knowledge of that other person, Mm. right? I can tell you about my wife, but I know her because I've lived life with her. We've gone through things and discovered things. And so when we read narrative, Tim, you make a great point that Jacob did not have scripture, but rather he is having to, as many of the characters are, learn about God through this experience. And we as the readers are invited to also learn those same lessons. Again, this is a selective history, right? Mm -hmm. So these stories have been preserved so that we as the readers may also learn the lesson that the characters are having to learn. Now, as we begin digging into the theology within narrative, there is a danger that I think we should address here Sometimes, Tim, I I have some examples in my head, but Mm -hmm. maybe you have some as well, that I've heard a story preached and I go, I like the theological message that was preached or taught out of that passage, but this is the wrong text. So I think there's a danger of having good theology, but going to the wrong text to try to prove it. Have you seen that before? Oh yeah. And, and that's, that's in one sense, I think, a feature of sort of uh, 
the interpretive grid that we bring to a text. When we come to a text, we don't come to it as a blank slate. So we have a lot of theological understanding that we bring to a text. But, you know, we see this first and foremost. It, it's possible just to blatantly rip maybe a verse or a couple of verses out of context. Um, for instance, if, if we look at narratives, and I know you mentioned this, referred to it at least in Jacob's dream. Okay, so Jacob ends up offering a tenth of what he has or promises to God that he's going to give him a tenth there in Genesis 28. And some might look at that and say, oh, well, this is the institution of a tithe, uh, or this is something <laughs> yep. that's, you know, determinative for us uh, or, or an example for us, when in reality, Jacob really doesn't show any evidence of true piety. Uh, it, it's more of, a, you know, I'm, I'm going to promise God something so that maybe I can get something in return. It's a bribe, right? He says, if God actually does what he says he's going to do, I'll give you a 10%. Right. That's a bribe. That's not a free will tithe or anything like that. Or Brian, here's another example of that that's related. You know, I've heard some people say that that tithing really started, for instance, whenever Abraham goes and rescues Lot and then he, you know, uh, yep. takes his army, there's a lot of war spoils, and then he gives a tenth of that to Melchizedek. And okay, great, you know, there might be some kind of shadow there of a, a tithe that's gonna come later, but at the same time, I I don't think a real honest reading of that passage she sees it as a model for us to follow in part because mm. you even consider the nature of the tithe. It was what war spoils, you know, it, yeah. it, 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 in other words, there might be eventually a right conclusion that comes from it, or there might be a principle principle about our, uh, you know, our need to give for God or even our desire to give to God uh, because of what he's given us. But it is very possible to draw a right conclusion, but to to really try to extrapolate it from a text that is not talking about that at all. Precisely. And if we are drawing the right principle, but from the wrong text, the thing we're explicitly missing, right, mm -hmm. is what that text was actually trying to teach us. Yeah. So I think of Jacob's story here. You think of the Abram story you just referenced, those have points that we're going to ignore if we just go, oh, these are teaching us about tithing and we move on. We yeah. misunderstand, uh, going back maybe to Jacob's story because we talked about that more. This is showing that Jacob's heart is still not where it needs to be with God. This mm -hmm. is foreshadowing and setting up a wrestling match he's going to have a little bit later in his life <laughs> at a yeah. critical juncture, right? At, when he's forced you have no other out. You can't bribe. You can't cheat. You can't run. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do as mm -hmm. you reconfront your brother? So it's important that we get the right theology from the right text. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think first there's some good rules to just keep in the back of our mind to help us approach these narratives. The first point I would suggest is to understand that any given story doesn't cover all of theology. Right? So yeah. there are yeah. no narratives that goes, hey, every sis single systematic theology point is referenced in this story. No, of course not. Stories are about very specific things. So let's make sure we understand that this story, whatever story we're in, doesn't have to have addressed every potential question, every possible part of God, of humanity, of sin, etc. Instead, let the story simply inform us about the topics it is seeking to cover. 
Yeah. No. And Brian, I really, I really like that point because, you know, there are, there are ditches on both sides. Sometimes we want to make the story say more than it actually says, which is a ditch on one side. And then sometimes we actually uh, don't see all that a story is, is meant to tell us. And there's Ooh, a lot of richness point. and depth. So it, it's, it's in one sense, letting the story speak for itself, not trying to bring, you know, our kind of theological questions to it, but rather let, letting it shape our theological questions and understanding the story on its own terms and as a story, uh, not as propositional statements. Yeah, I, I love that point. And then, so the next way, as we think about how to find the right theology from narrative, how to read it well, and this is, this is such an important point that you put down for us here, we've got to understand progressive revelation and beware of reading later theology back onto earlier texts. So Tim, progressive revelation is a more technical term. Could you unpack that a little bit before you go on? Yeah, so to me, there's, there's kind of a, a twofold awareness here. The first is that, of course, we know that there is a continuous and unfolding nature of the story of the events that happen in the Bible. In other words, they happen through time. And so as time goes on, we see the, the events mm-hmm. themselves build on one another. In other words, you have to understand Abraham before you understand Isaac, before you understand Jacob. There's a basic timeline. But the second part of it, I think, is, is even more important. It's the idea that as that timeline progresses, God is revealing more and more of his redemptive plan through the events that unfold. So, in other words, God continues to reveal new things about himself, both to the people in the stories, and that's crucial to understand, but also to us as the readers of the stories. And uh, if we miss that, what we end up doing is reading things into older texts that the people in those texts would not have known or understood because God hadn't revealed it yet. And, and that is, to me, a, a serious error. We've got to come to the text and understand what point of the story are these people in and what point of the story and what information and background information does the author of these stories assume that we have as readers as we come to the text. So progressive revelation is this idea that God is unfolding his redemptive purposes through history, but especially as we read it, we've got to be aware of what those people would have known about God, of what they would have known about themselves, and not read into those stories things that only later revelation tells us. Uh, We may know that because we have the full story, but those characters may not have known those things at that time. Yeah, I think that's a significant point because that fits into sometimes trying to get the right theology from the wrong text. We're making older stories try to teach New Testament principles, and that both distorts the Old Testament and undercuts the significance of the New Testament, where some of these things come out as not necessarily new implications, but a new application of the principles already revealed. Mm -hmm. I think a good example of this, and we do this all the time, is a overreading of the word Satan in the Old Testament. Mm. So in Job chapter one, Tim, we both know this, right? The sons of God, the Bene Elohim in Hebrew mm-hmm. are coming before the throne room of God and Hasatan comes in with them. Mm-hmm. I think most English translations, it's capital S Satan, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, just translationally, if you know Hebrew, you know that that's probably an incorrect or poor choice or at the best, it's an unclear choice mm-hmm. uh, because he's not Satan, he's Ha-Satan. 
Mm-hmm. The Satan. That means that's a title. Uh, proper names in Hebrew never have the article ha or the attached to it. Mm-hmm. So whoever this figure is in Job 1 is not a named person named Satan, but he is the Satan, the accuser, the adversary, or as Ryan Stokes' new book tries to put out, uh, the executioner. Mm. It's an interesting side tangent we don't have to go into. But this is a figure that we shouldn't necessarily then associate with everything we're going to learn about this figure in the New Testament as the personified named opponent of God. Because Job does not assume that that's fully fledged what this character is, and that maybe misreads what the Satan's role is in the book of Job. Likewise, Tim, I don't know if you'll go with me on this one. Mm -hmm. When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, what did Jesus actually mean? Did he Mm -hmm. mean get behind me, personified enemy of God, or get behind me, the accuser, the adversary? The person who resists the will of God. Not in a capital S Satan sense, but in a lowercase, someone who is opposing the will of God. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, in the case of Job, and, and this is where, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, well, wait a minute, I've never heard that before. Brian, I actually, and I'm glad you asked me, because I remember as an undergrad and I was sitting uh, in a class and one of my professors said something similar you know, and he phrased it like this, maybe Hasatan and Job was actually just doing his job, which was what? Trying to test and determine whether or not Job was actually faithful. In other words, he didn't even read it as as some kind of like contest. Uh, he read mm-hmm. Hasatan as, uh, as, as doing the job that God had appointed him to do, which was, uh, which was basically weighing whether or not people were actually following, following God from a pure heart. Which is, again, why maybe Satan says things like, well, you're, he's only doing this because you're blessing him. You know that, right? And so, anyway, I remember sitting there as an undergrad, and it was just kind of a mind-blowing thought, because in my mind, I had imported all of the New Testament associations with Satan uh, onto Job, and I didn't really think about the fact that, wait a second, the first readers, the, the initial audience of the book of Job— uh, may not have had that kind of development in their mind. And as you mentioned, and this is, this is interesting because as a feature of Hebrew, what you said is obviously exactly true. Hasatan is a very uh, conspicuous way of saying or expressing that. Uh, and so, you know, with the definite article, it really challenges that idea that maybe we're supposed to have all of those associations, or we could even say it mm-hmm. maybe more carefully that the first readers would have had all of those associations uh, with Satan. And as we come to the New Testament, and you mentioned this, I can't remember which episode, Brian, but you mentioned it's revelation that ultimately brings it all together. So it's not even until the very end of the New Testament that we have all of these threads woven together of the serpent and the dragon and Satan and all of the rest. And to me, uh, it's kind of the principle of it's difficult to, you know, you can't not know what you know as readers of the New Testament, but also as we're reading the text, we have to understand that the main point of, of the that Job was trying to make wasn't about the identity of Satan as this, you know, malevolent pitchfork wielding trying to to destroy the plans and purposes of god that's not necessarily what they would have understood that to be and that's what we have to be aware of as readers is that in the unfolding plan of redemption that information 
probably was not available to them. And in that sense, maybe that's why we have the definite article with Hasatan in Job in Job 1. Tim, I think you've maybe talked us into having to have a one-off episode on this topic because there's a lot of interest here in the Satan, in Isaiah's Lucifer, how that fits in. Um, so maybe that would be a, a, an interesting episode for our audience to listen to because yeah uh, yes. your points are very well taken here yeah well and and i love i love uh, as as we think about this this is part of again why it's fun to wrestle with that and and also you know it's interesting too just with job and i i totally agree we need to do a one-off because one of the interesting things about that story is job is never told about any of that background information it's yep. only He's you know oblivious. Yeah, it's it's only this omniscient narrator who sees that who uh, who informs the reader. Um, so, uh, and there's there's never an epilogue, right? There's never a comeback where God, you know, squares his deal with the devil at the end or anything like that. Uh, there there really is a a mysterious element to it, which to me points points to the fact that hey, there is more going on there. Even the first readers, I think, would have understood that, but they weren't giving the fullness of that information. So, yeah, I, I think I think it's so important because it is possible for us to, to kind of fast forward the tape, so to speak, grab all of the information from the New Testament that we're given and then import it on the Old Testament in a way that that could cause us to miss what the original readers were meant to understand from that story. Absolutely. All right, so we've talked about progressive revelation. Um, one more thing that I think it is so important to understand, Brian, is the difference between a biblical text describing a reality and the idea that God is somehow condoning the actions that the Bible is Ooh. describing. Yes, very good point. And I, I think this is so important because one of the issues that, that many of us wrestle with with the Old Testament is some of the ethical concerns of, you know, how could God command this, or how could God condone this, or how could God, you know, we look at some of the things in the Old Testament, we think, well, that, how is that your will, God? And and this mm. seems to, to, to be allowing things that, that maybe we see as sinful, or, or and and here's to me, it, it connects with the idea of progressive revelation. One of the things that I think we have to remember is that God's will and the intention of God in creation is evident in the first chapters of Genesis. We see how God created the world. But really, whenever we read anything on the other side of Genesis 3, and I, I think even more so on the other side of Genesis 9 after the end of the flood, I think we have to be aware that, that God is in one sense, making some concessions because he knows and he sees the sinfulness of the human heart. And in many cases, what we see is God regulating activity that he never condones. And and I think that's crucial as we understand the ethics of the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's kind of like this, Brian. I'm going to throw out an analogy at you live here too and see what you think about it. If someone is undergoing surgery, a great surgeon doesn't only have to know what to do to fix the problem, but if, if someone's had a major, major, say, break in their body, or maybe they've broken, say, multiple bones at the same time, the greatest surgeon doesn't just fix the bones. He has to know the right order in which to fix them so that ultimately mm. the entire body can be healed. And, and to me, that's at least helpful in understanding that God saw the sinfulness of the human heart. He knew, as it says in Genesis chapter 8, that all the inclinations of the thought of the heart of man were only evil continually, right? He knew the situation's very, very broken. And in light of that brokenness, 
humans are going to rebel, humans are going to sin, and so God allows for certain things or uh, concedes certain things. I think even of Jesus' statement, it's because of the hardness of your heart, and then he goes yeah, on to explain exactly. these realities. I, I think as we read the Old Testament, we have to take our cue from how God designed the world in the beginning, but the rest of the stories of the Old Testament don't really give us a great indication of what the true will of God is. It does show us that God is willing to enter into the mess of the world and regulate it, but it's, it's because of the sinfulness of human heart that we see so much destruction. I think that's a good point that as readers, when we come to this text, we need to recognize that God is prioritizing how to get people back into right relationship with him to move that narrative forward and also is condescending is the term I like to use condescending mm. to human culture, human language, human sinfulness. And uh, your analogy of the surgeon, I think is very apt. Polygamy is never explicitly forbidden anywhere in the old Testament. Does that mean God is good with it? Well, it's not explicitly forbidden, but Tim, can you think of any story in which multiple spouses are coupled together where it goes well. <laughs> it's always no, the no. source of problems, right? Yeah. And and I think that's a great a great way to see we have to infer certain things theologically from narratives. Uh, and we see very clearly, for instance, that when God had the opportunity to demonstrate his design, he showed one man, one woman, one lifetime, right? With with Adam and Eve. And so uh, as we look at polygamy, the, the moment we see polygamy enter into the scriptures in Genesis 4, uh, it, it, it's in a context of, of darkness and sinfulness. And every single time, you know, you think of, it, you know, we talked about Jacob earlier. Okay, mm -hmm. Jacob, Leah, Rachel, the other two. It's like um, it, when, when that happens, we see the devastating consequences of when God's true and, and perfect designs are basically thrown aside. Very good point. So we've talked about rules to keep in mind as we approach theology. Let's get to some actual practices. And, and I want to give our listeners three good practices to try to read the right theology from the right text when we come to narrative. First, look for the central theme of the story you're reading. This ties back to the fact that not every story talks about everything. So ask yourself, why was this story kept? Why was it preserved? What is it doing? How is it moving this story forward, the story of this book forward, the story of the greater narrative of the Old Testament forward? Whatever that central theme is, that's where you're going to find the theology. And that's how you can make sure you're staying true to the authorial intention or point of the story. Two, look for how this story maybe develops the larger meta-narrative. Let's go back to Jacob's dream at Bethel. This has some interesting theological points of who God is and where he is in and of itself, but it also fits into a larger theme, a larger theme of Jacob's slow transformation into Israel and being that patriarch of the nation. It fits into the even greater theme of God's covenant relationship with the chosen line. So looking for that development will also clue us in to where the significant theology is taking place. And then third, understand that narratives have characters, and narratives are always trying to tell us about those characters. The central and primary character of the Old Testament and of the Bible is God. Every story in some way is going to be revealing him. Now that could be something directly about him, how he views creation, or how we are supposed to be, who we are, or how we engage with sin. 
but be looking for how is this story revealing God? Because tying back to our last episode, if this is God's self-revelation, that is going to be an intention behind the story. So I think those three principles are going to be really helpful to us. Look for the central theme, look for developments in the larger meta narrative, and look for how the story reveals God or his view of the world. Yeah, Brian, I love all three of those points. And and I think a, a couple things come to mind. First, as we talk about the language of meta narrative or progressive revelation or unfolding, you know, those are those are big words and important concepts, but this is again something that we naturally do. But we've we've sometimes just got to come to the Bible uh, as as people who understand stories, and, and we don't have to make it more complicated than it is. In other mm. words, and I go back to this analogy, you know, if we're if we're reading a book like a novel, or if we're watching a TV show or a movie, we understand that story builds upon itself. Episode two builds upon episode one. Episode three builds upon episode two. Season two builds on episode one, or season one. Story naturally builds, and and this gets back to the idea we talked about last time, reading the Bible in chunks, you know, reading these stories as though one builds on another helps us uh, guard against that Sunday school eyes and seeing the episodes as disconnected. You know, we've got Mm. to see the connection points between the story. And then the other thing that I just wanted to say is when it comes to seeing God as the main character, uh, that is so crucial Sometimes we look at the biblical characters, and honestly, I love what you said earlier in this episode, Brian. We, we sometimes have an overly pious view of those men and women. Hmm, you know, yeah. we, we, try, we try to iron out their, their, you know, their wrinkles. We try to saw off their rough edges when the reality is these were men and women just like us who were, were dealing with very difficult issues, very uh, real-life crises. And, you know, we, we sometimes try to baptize some of their behavior when the point is that's exactly the opposite of what the text is doing. And, and it's, you know, I think of, for instance, you know, David— as a small example, it'd be great eventually to do an episode about David and Bathsheba and that sin. But here's, here's kind of the reality. David was the king of Israel. If there was any event in his life that he would want kind of expunged from the record, Hmm. you would think it's, it's his, you know, his sin taking advantage of Bathsheba. And yet the reality is God preserves these, these rough edges, God preserves the stories of the sinfulness of humanity, one, to again highlight his faithfulness, but also so that we can see it's him that we need to pay the most attention to, right? I mean, we might yeah. be able to find some good principles or moral lessons or whatever with the people, but the story of the scripture is the story of the faithfulness of God amidst all of the failure of humanity. And again, that thrusts us forward to Christ. That's what makes Christ so unique yeah. and worthy of worship. So I love all those points. Look at the central theme, see how it develops, understand that God's the primary character. Absolutely crucial to rightly draw theology from narrative. When we honestly look at the narratives of the Old Testament, we cannot put people on pedestals because it is a story chock full, as you said, of sin and of failure. And yet that is in and of itself a central point. God uses brokenness. God uses broken people. And as readers, I would hope we would take a great deal of comfort from that. If God can use people like Jacob, like David, he can use you and me even in the midst of brokenness. And it points us to the one character 
who doesn't have brokenness, as you said, Christ in the New Testament. So wonderful points. Listeners, I hope this has been a helpful look, both last week and this week, at narrative, at understanding theology out of narrative, and I hope it helps you start digging deeper into the text and fixing those Sunday school eyes. Next time we're together, we're going to start talking about the world of the Old Testament. How does an understanding of the ancient Near East, the culture of Israel, that they deal with, how does that help us understand the emphasis that the Old Testament is placing on certain events? One other thing we want to put out there is if you have been enjoying this podcast and have questions or want to provide feedback, please email us. Our email is inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com. Between series, we are planning to have episodes dedicated to answering your questions. So if you would like that, be sure to send those in. Once again, our email is inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com. And until next time, friends, stay cool and stay old.